4: Will you sing me the song from Robin Hood? <laughs>
3: How's it go? Don't How's wanna it? close your eyes. No 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 <laughs> no. I don't know, dude. It's, it's like a
4: it's like a prom song. I don't Oh oh, oh yeah yeah. yeah. Everything <laughs> I do, do it for you. I don't know that song. I don't know that song at all. I about. know you know it, Chris. I don't know it. <laughs> Look into my- Alright now scary, there's stuff
2: moving on the screen.
4: <laughs> you can see <laughs> There's nothing what? there
3: for me. Hey, welcome to another episode of Conspiranormal. This is your host, Adam Sane. I'm sure you know that. Your co-host, Luke Reed. How yeah. you doing, Luke? You feel a little under the weather. Yeah,
4: some idiot got me sick, I guess. I don't know.
3: And uh, Chris is back this week. Yes, of course. Hello. How are you doing, Chris?
4: I am all right.
2: Uh, glad to be back from that, uh, I guess you could call it a
3: vacation. How was, uh, how was Alabama. You get, uh, did you get to meet Yellow Wolf? Yeah. No. Uh,
2: <laughs> unfortunately, the only good day really on my vacation was Thanksgiving. The rest was me locked in a hotel room with uh, three people that I only moderately like. So.
3: Well, that's uh, that's not your family, is it? Yeah, that's my family. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> in a ho- in a hotel room.
2: Yes, in a hotel room. Oh, that's right. You went to the beach. I right. went to Florida. Yes.
3: Oh. And
2: then and then the great part about it was my license actually expired the day before we left. So when I went to the bar and I was all like, yo, give me a drink. They were all like, no. And I was like, what?
3: So you couldn't drink or anything. I,
2: I ended up buying a bottle of vodka and being very happy for the rest of the trip.
3: Well, congratulations. It sounds like it was, sounds like it was fun. You got a week off of work, which yeah. is always good.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. It was good to see my family and everything. So. Yeah.
3: Well, speaking of drinking, uh, Luke, you, we understand you had a uh, wonderful time this weekend.
4: Yeah, my best birthday ever, dude. Yeah, best I know. Yeah, ever. happy
3: birthday, happy belated birthday to Luke. Yeah, he's. Uh, Thank you. He's thirty-seven years old today. But yeah, <laughs> I,
4: yeah, I look like it. <laughs>
3: it's all that hard living. <laughs> so, uh, how was your weekend, man? What, uh, how did it go for you? Chris is dying to find out. By the yes. way, we haven't, yes, we haven't, I we haven't told him yet. I, uh,
4: so I was at a party, kind of like a rave party, and we were playing loud techno and dancing and everything. And uh, <laughs> I was drinking the hunch punch, which was still like fifty proof, even after they watered it down with other stuff. Good times. It's like six different drinks inside that inside that what we were drinking. I met a guy who got robbed by a gypsy. I was <laughs>
3: He got robbed by a gypsy while he was over there?
4: Yeah, in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was just related to story. (laughs) I didn't even know that gypsies were, like, you know, actually still a a people. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they're still around. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I left the party and I wasn't ready to call it a night because it was only like 12.30 or 1 o'clock or something like that. So uh, I got in the car and just started driving. Me and Cody maxed it out on the highway 120. Listening to metal, throwing beer cans out the window, you know, just getting wild. <laughs> and uh, I went across like four different counties, and finally I got you
3: covered all of Middle Tennessee basically.
4: <laughs> finally, I uh, I got stopped in Last that's going the wrong direction. <laughs> wow. And and uh, and yeah, so he, he took me, in. I, he he gave me the ABC test, and I just started laughing at him. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, it's like you, you couldn't remember what was after tea or I something made, I made like it
4: that. To, I made it to tea and then I just started laughing at him. Did he make you walk the white line or anything? Yeah, or, I didn't really stumble or anything, but I guess the ABC test did it for him.
3: Yeah, I get a I get a text message on Sunday morning that says uh, I'm sitting in the back of a cop car going to jail. Laugh out loud. <laughs> this is what I, this is what I get yesterday morning from Luke. And of course, you know, I'm like, what? That's and great. then your brother came and bailed you out the next morning. Yeah. So good times. Man, I mean, an awesome birthday. Would you say your 25th birthday was the best ever?
4: Of course, yeah.
2: So I'm just Absolutely. gonna say it. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, if you end up doing some jail time, you know, we'll, 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 we'll you, you can call us in on the Conspiranormal hotline. I just, I <laughs> th- I think that he should have charged me with General Mayhem. <laughs> yeah, are you are you disappointed you didn't get charged with general mayhem? Yeah, dude <laughs> I mean, This is the kind of fun that we like to have here uh, <laughs> I'm a pretty boring guy myself, you know Chris I you know, but but Luke It's always something new with you, man. <laughs> yeah I Feel
2: like I'm like a good middle ground like I have my adventures, but I have like
3: that's right. You're the ground here. Yeah, You're what keeps us us, uh, on the earth, so to speak, I suppose, Chris. Well,
2: well, I don't know. You kind of weigh us down with your overall boringness. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I'm
3: glad that I just drone on and on and on. It's all good, Adam. It's all good. (laughs) Anyway, uh, just uh, last time we had Adam go rightly on, that was quite an interview. Chris, I don't know if you got a chance to hear it. That's why you were in in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. But... uh, What did, did you any insight on that? What did you think about the interview?
2: Um, I thought it was a really great interview, really well done. It's always a, it's always a joy to hear Adam, uh, both Adams, really, and Luke yep. of course. Uh, as long as Luke doesn't go to jail again, we're good. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really well done. Um, Do you think it was really weird? course it's always weird with Adam Garreitly it's always yeah, it was routine. strange huh that's what that, that's our second interview with him right yeah yeah that's the, sec, yeah, that's that's the, the second, second one, one. Yeah, I, the first one was yeah pretty weird too so
3: I don't know how much of it he actually believes but uh we we, we thought that definitely the uh the most interesting part of the interview was when I said uh he was talking about um, something about Disneyland and about having experiences on roller coasters, time, time and I kind of, yeah, commercial. I kind of chuckled a little bit. And he was like, well, you laugh?" But, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that, that was that was a very interesting moment. Well, tonight we have on uh, Scotty Roberts, and he has uh, written a book about the uh, Nephilim, and uh, it's going to be very interesting because I think he uh, he has a kind of a he has a background in theology. But he's also one of the people that is responsible for organizing the Paradigm Symposium, which uh, just got done in October. And they're having their second one next year. But uh, this was in Minneapolis. And they had uh, Eric Von Danigen, Giorgio Tsoukalos, uh, all the kind of ancient aliens guys. And so uh, he's written a book that, uh, that I really enjoyed reading. Um, called the about the nephilim and uh it's an interesting subject there's a lot of work that's kind of been done on it but uh, i think he brings a little bit of a more kind of balanced view to it a little more so uh if there's anything you guys want to add we'll go ahead and go over to him uh no (laughs) no okay all right let's bring it on all right let's do it all right and we guys will be back on conspiranormal Alright, we're back on Conspiranormal You know who I am You know who I am too (laughs) And you know who this guy is, Chris You know all of us, we're all friends That's right, everybody knows who we are by now Uh, On the line we have uh, Scotty Roberts He has written a book called The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim I found it quite fascinating Uh, Scotty is the publisher And founder of the Intrepid magazine he is uh, also an author, and as I saw today on his website, a photographer, a man of many trades. Uh, Scotty, if you can uh, introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about, uh, a, a little more about who you are.
1: Okay. Well, uh, you, you kind of covered the high points there. I am okay. the uh, founder and publisher of Intrepid Magazine, and we uh, work a magazine that uh, caters to uh, not just science and politics, but kind of the weird... Uh, going off into the uh, fringe sciences and fringe history and uh, philosophy and uh, unexplained phenomena, things like that. And uh, I really founded that magazine because it is all the stuff I like and all the stuff I like to do and uh, things I want to know things about. And uh, prior to that, I was the editor in chief of Taps Paramag, the ghost hunters from Sci Fi, their official magazine. And uh, we could never quite take that magazine beyond a certain point, and so when I resigned from there about two years ago, I launched Intrepid Magazine. And Micah Hanks is my partner in that effort. Uh, He's the editor-in-chief of my magazine. And uh, boy, uh, you know, I've done a lot of stuff. I've primarily been in advertising most of my life uh, as a creative director, an illustrator, a designer, an art director. Prior to that, I went to school, I went to Bible college, and I went to theological seminary, and I was in ministry, uh, youth work mostly, in the early 80s to the, to the early 90s. And I uh, went through some disillusionments, mostly uh, of a nature of political uh, governance of church, church methodologies and policies, and I started to, to pull myself out from that a bit, and now a lot of the research I do has brought a lot of things into question. Uh, I am by far, I am not an atheist. I I, I say at at days I feel like a practical atheist, but I am more what you might refer to as a Christian agnostic, uh, in that uh, I have not abandoned the basic tenets of my faith, but at the same time um, I don't see how things work the way that we were taught. And so I do a lot of thinking and a lot of questioning, a lot of research, which has ended up in most of the books I write about and uh, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, which came out earlier this year. Uh, the follow-up to that book is The Secret History of the Reptilians. It's subtitled, a big long hair subtitle, which is uh, The Pervasive Presence of the Serpent Throughout Human History, Religion, and Alien Mythos. And uh, that comes out in February <clears throat> of 2013. And then uh, we we're just launching into a new book for my publisher, New Page Books. Uh, And I'm co-authoring this one with a good friend of mine, Dr. John Ward, who is an archaeologist, anthropologist, living in Luxor, Egypt, for the last uh, dozen or more years, works with his associate, Dr. Maria Nilsson, and they do a lot of cataloging of certain sites and and archaeological work, classical archaeological work out there. And when I wrote Nephilim, I had a big chapter in there on Moses and the writing of the book of Genesis where you pull out the... uh, uh, the biblical source point for the word Nephilim, which is the story that begins the Noah and the ark story, which we can get into as much as you want in this interview. Uh, but uh, I use John for some uh, historical so- source points, archaeological source points, and uh, he and I, for the last year, have been toying with the idea of writing a book together on Moses and the Exodus and all the mysterious stuff, not just the history. It's not a book about Bible history, it's a book that that looks at something that's mentioned in the Bible and examines it from, uh, we have two different perspectives on the Exodus, Uh, about two generations apart is where we place the dating of it, and uh, mine in 1446 B.C., his uh, in 1359 B.C., and so uh, uh, we're exploring those and exploring all the history around it, all of the woo, if you will, that's around it all the mysterious stuff that's around it and uh the book is tentatively titled uh, the Exodus Reality and uh this is going to be coming out through new page books we don't even have a date for that yet but i traveled to egypt in january of 2013 for several weeks to spend some time with john ward and we're going out to the sinai desert to to look at the the uh, ancient uh, ruins of the temple of hathor which is the temple of the calf if you think golden calf and Moses and the Exodus, you'll, you'll see the connection, and a couple of the sites uh, that are said to be the Mount Sinai site, and then we're working our way down the Nile, down to Luxor, where he lives, and we're visiting several uh, sites along the way uh, affiliated and associated with the uh, the Moses and the Exodus story. So that's what's on my plate right now.
3: Cool, interesting, and I want to, definitely wanna talk about Moses uh, a little later. Sure. Uh, but I wanted to talk about um, You know, for our uh, listeners that maybe are not aware of what they are, uh, could you kind of go over a little bit about what the nephilim are? Sure. And uh, how uh, how you became interested in studying that?
1: Sure. Uh, The nephilim is uh, it's become almost pop cultural the word you find the word being used in in association with ancient aliens a lot. Right. Um, They tie it to the Anunnaki which is you know 1500 to 2500 years earlier in the Sumerian culture but the the word Nephilim is a a Hebrew word (coughs) pardon me I don't have a cough button on this end no problem. Um, uh, It's a Hebrew word uh, that is sourced in the book of Genesis primarily Um, in the Old Testament and it's found in a couple of other obscure places in the Bible as we see it today Uh, and there are also books that are not in the Bible per se anymore that were removed during uh, the councils uh, under Constantine and following emperors in the 300s and the 400s where they canonized the Bible that we have today into the 66 books that exist today but there's many books taken out that make reference to the Nephilim. There were lost books that are not part of the Bible now, that have recently been found uh, in recent years, recent hundred years, let's put it that way, and uh, uh, found to to hold references to the Nephilim. Now, Nephilim simply means this. Uh, There's been some mistranslations in in the Old Bible. If you look at your King James version of the Bible, the the most uh, traditional form of the Bible that exists out there, if you go to the bookstore, and the King James was written uh, or translated in 1611 under James the of Scotland and England uh, the son of Mary Queen of Scots and he's the one who was responsible for the King James Bible yep. and uh, uh, that Bible will give you uh, it, it talks about giants in relation to the Nephilim and that's a mistranslation of the word there were words Nephilim, Nephilim uh other variations of the word in Aramaic and Hebrew and so on and what you have to do is go back and find out what the word means and so in a book like this that I wrote about the Nephilim and relating it to biblical history real history other cultural mythologies as well as ancient alien theory or notion or hypothesis um, you have to start looking at what the word meant in its context when it was written the actual definition you have to look at what the people reading the text at the time it was written would have understood you also have to look at, uh, at what the context meant to those people in that day and age and so when you start taking all that into account you have to get back to the definition of the word and the word nephilim is from the base Hebrew word nephal which means to fall, to come down, to descend to have left one's estate for another estate uh, uh, or place of being and it's a, the broad definition of that is moving from one place to another place in an act of falling or coming down or movement. Now that's a singular word. You add the, the Hebrew him at the end, nephilim, and you get the plurality. So the word nephilim simply means those who fell those who came down, those who left their estate and so on and when you start looking at the linguistics of the word you have to figure out what it meant. Now the Nephilim were not the ones who actually did the coming down, which is interesting. All they are are the offspring, they're the descendants. The Nephilim were a mixed race of human and according to old translations people thought these were the fallen angels, so angelic and human mix. But we find that the word angel doesn't appear anywhere in the text, in the Hebrew, which is the word malach or malachi for plurality. Angel never appears. So we're not talking about angels here um, that came down. But the verse in Genesis says, and in those days the sons of God came down and intermingled with the daughters of men and had children by them, and they were known as the Nephilim, the heroes of old and the men of renown. And it said, goes on to say, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. So you start looking, and, and by the way, that's all the book of Genesis says. It doesn't cast judgment, it doesn't say they were good, it doesn't say they were bad. It just is like a mention in a mere four verses, then it moves right into the account of Noah and the ark. And uh, what people don't realize, and what I didn't even know when I grew up in the Baptist conservative fundamentalist church, uh, went to that kind of Bible college, that kind of seminary. This was never dealt with. It was never answered. And uh, uh, it was never the connection between the Nephilim being the children of a mixing of the sons of God and human women as a preamble to the Noah arcs. Noah and the ark story was never, ever mentioned.
3: Scotty? Uh, yes. When they, when they did mention it and you asked them the question, did they go for the whole that... Uh Oh, you boy. had one line that was the, the offspring of Seth and another was another. Uh, never. So, yeah, that's never even,
1: even never, uh, asked the question. It was never addressed. As a matter of huh. fact, it was one, uh, 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 my very good friend all through high school and college, his dad was the dean of the seminary that was in our church there. And uh, uh, I asked him specifically about the, the, the sons of God and the Nephilim. Now keep in mind, and we'll get into this, the sons of God is merely the English translation of of the phrase, but he said, well, he says, the first thing I know, I know where you're going with this, you have to get out of your mind that these were anything other than human beings. He said the sons of God simply referred to the aristocrats in ancient Israel who uh, uh, who had built the school of the prophets and it was the sons of these men who were from the school of the prophets up on the hill that would come down in a sense slumming in with the common women in the valley and this is the coming down and uh, their offspring were the nephilim which were uh were told were the heroes of old and men of renown which simply was a reference to the hebrew Geborim, which uh stood for the mighty men of valor and the great yeah. warriors and the great godlike warriors but get out of your mind Scott Roberts that this has anything to do with anything mystical or anything unearthly it's just human beings
3: even though it doesn't say that
1: even though it doesn't say that and I would bring up the question I would say now wait a minute in systematic theology you teach us that language means something and I said if you go back to the Hebrew you've got the sons of God which which in the Hebrew is the bene ha Elohim the sons of God. Elohim being one of the many names for God in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Elohim is the name used for God almost 3,000 times the most in the Old Testament. So it says, the sons of Elohim, the Bene Ha-Elohim, came down and intermingled with the daughters of Adam, Adam being the word for mankind. And I said, why, if language means something, are you telling me this is humans intermingling with humans, when it doesn't say, the sons of Adam mingled with the daughters of Adam, but it says the the sons of Elohim, of the Elohim, intermingled with the daughters of Adam, of mankind. I said there is a stark contrast in the language. What does that mean? And the answer I got was, that means you're causing trouble, and you need to not talk about that, because that's not what we're teaching in in our theology. Sure. And uh, that's where I started running into stone walls on this stuff. And the more I looked into it, the more I found that you start defining Elohim as the name for God. It's the God you name for God used the most in the Old Testament, as I just mentioned, over 2700 times. And uh, Elohim, by definition, means this. El is the Hebrew word for God, EL. That's the word for God. And you get from that Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, all the different variations of El, uh, which means God, God Almighty, God in the Mightiest, and so on and so forth. Uh, But the him ending, remember we just talked about Nephilim, Nephal and him, meant the plurality. So Elohim has the same Hebrew suffix put on the end. Elohim, God among or God of many gods, is what the direct term translation of the word means. And I would ask about that. What does that mean? And, of course, I was told the the typical answer in a very uh, Protestant, uh, if you will, although they don't claim Protestant, Baptist as Baptist, you know. uh, conservative fundamental setting, uh, well, that obviously is a reference to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I accepted that for a while until I learned, well, wait a minute, the Jews or the Hebrews did not recognize a Trinity. So what was Moses talking about when he wrote the words Nephilim? Uh, when he wrote, I'm sorry, the, the word Elohim? Yeah. It's a plurality. You have to start going to other places in the scripture to find definitions of what the Elohim were. And I can cut to the chase and tell you right now that my, my research has led me to this point is that the Elohim are a pantheon of gods. The Old Testament does not teach, per se, monotheism. It teaches that there are a pantheon of gods with a supreme god that rules over them, much like Zeus ruled over the gods of the Greek pantheon, and or Elil ruled over the gods of the Anunnaki, which is another uh, uh, very stark, amazing um, comparison uh, that we can get into later, el and Elohim and El and all of that but uh, um, so what you've got here with Elohim is a plurality and uh, you can jump all around passages in the Old Testament and find correlating scriptures the sons of God, the Bene, uh, Bene Ha-Elohim came down intermingled with the daughters of men so I wanted to start looking into who are the Elohim one very good place to look is Psalm 82, in the Book of Psalms. And it's got a a psalm there that shows God speaking to a group it refers to as the Divine Council. And this, again, was not something we learned much about in seminary, although it's right there in the Bible. The Divine Council. I remember hearing that for the first time saying, what the hell is the Divine Council? I thought there was God and his angels well some will interpret this as angels but again the word for angel never appears in describing the divine council it uses Elohim. Now keep in mind this Elohim is a word that can be used both plurally and singularly depending on the context of the passage And, and this I even said in the book I said now don't let your eyes gloss over we gotta dig into some ancient Hebrew linguistics but this is the stuff that opens the door it sheds light on all of these questions so when you start looking into the linguistics, it gives you a deeper understanding of what's being talked about. In this passage, it's got uh, both the, the, the plural and the singular version of Elohim in Psalm 82. It's, by the way, used a lot like we use our word in the English for deer. I see a deer singular in my front yard. I see yeah. a herd of deer plural in my backyard. Um, so it's got God speaking. And I'll interchange the Hebrew word Elohim where the English says God and gods. It says, an Elohim stood in the midst of the Elohim. A a singular standing in a plurality of Elohim. And he, singular, said to them, plural, you are all Elohim, the bright, shining princes of heaven. And then it goes on, he's casting judgment on them for something, and it never tells you what it's all about. But what was very interesting about this text is that it's saying God very God Elohim is not singular he's a singular entity speaking to a plurality of gods of Elohim you could even find the word Elohim by the way used in the Old Testament was used to describe the guy who's selling idols out of his tent he has his tent pitched and he's got a bunch of clay and wood and metal cast gods all, all referred to in that passage as, and this guy sold Elohim out of his tent. It's a plurality. Gotcha. So mm-hmm. what do you do with this? When you find out the bene ha-Elohim, the sons of God, the sons of the God of many gods, those who are of the God of many gods, were the ones that descended down and intermingled with human women, you get a totally different picture of what's going on behind the scenes in Scripture. And it even goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes into other passages to create a huge case for the Elohim coming down, intermingling with humans in order to, in a sense, create a dual bloodline that was existent in ancient humanity. And uh, uh, so, and and I can go forward with this, however deep you want me to go, and establish why the Bible is very clear when you start looking between the lines and finding out there's encoded messages here it isn't just at face value and it's also rewriting ancient history more ancient than the Bible itself and adapting and and incorporating ancient religion into the writings of the Old Testament and what I gotta tell you guys when I first started seeing that I had already been questioning elements of my faith, and as I told you, I was agnostic and thinking things through. I remember writing this book and finishing this, and I sat back in my desk chair and looked at the ceiling it was about 3 in the morning, and I, I just said, God, I don't even know what I believe anymore, because <laughs> you are obviously not what I was taught. And there's something very different going on here. And keep in mind, everybody... The whole context of everything I am talking about. If you don't believe God exists, if you're atheist or uh, skeptical or scientific in your approach, keep in mind, I'm talking about these things from that con- the context of being within that story. What you got to do is step outside that box and look back in and examine it. So, For purposes of examining it, whether I believe something or not by faith, I don't want to dissuade anybody from believing what they choose to believe by faith. But if you're going to examine the facts behind your faith and know what the hell it is you believe, you got to step outside for a few minutes and look back in and say, I need to look at this as the Hebrew version of religious mythology compared to all the other mythologies around the world and in different cultures and religions. If you put them all in the box of religious mythology, this is the Hebrew mythology. And whether you choose to believe that as your personal faith Judeo-Christianity is your personal choice, but it does not mean that people from other religions don't view it as mythology from a different perspective. So this is what you have to do when you're examining this. You you gotta take your personal wants and desires out of it, uh, your personal beliefs out of it, and what you have to do is look at it from as, oh, as uh, um, objective a viewpoint as you possibly can. And I've got this this quote that's uh, at the end of all my emails. And uh, I put in a quote by John Adams, of all people. He says, facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes or our inclinations or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And when you apply that to scripture, you can say it's either one thing or the other. It's either all by faith. And God has said, you've got to believe this, even though all the facts controvert it, or there's something more going
3: on. I believe you do a really good job in the book of of really staying uh, very objective. Um, when, when I when I first picked up the book, I thought that uh, possibly I was going to get an ancient aliens theory thing, but uh, that's completely not what I got. You went into so much detail on um, on on the language and, uh, and all, everything that you just that you just said. Uh, to where I just felt like you could uh, anyone could, could read the book and kind of come to their own conclusions
1: uh, you know I, I, I actually drew some criticism for that uh, for well, uh, somebody wrote a review on it and, on Amazon and said something to the effect of well uh, you're just wishy-washy you aren't coming out and making a stand on anything you believe in <laughs> huh. and I said well you know what I believe in I said I, I believe in presenting the facts and you making that decision I can't, I could preach to you all I want I could say open your Bibles to the book of Genesis and we're going to look at what God did for mankind <laughs> you know and I mock it that way only because, uh, you yeah. know, think of the old evangelist, I could sure. take that stance I could take a stance of saying you know science, which by the way, the skeptical science if you will, I, I believe has just established itself as another religion uh, true hey, skeptic- amen to that <laughs> True skepticism asks questions, and wants to seek answers, and says, "Prove it to me. Show me." Uh, We've got. uh, I'll get into this for just a second here. I believe there are what I call big S skeptics and small S skeptics. I believe me, uh, a lot of people I work with were small S skeptics, meaning all of this stuff we approach with a certain amount of skepticism. You have to have that in place. You can't because you can't just suck your thumb and suck an answer out of it and go, oh, I believe that today, uh, because it sounds really cool. We've got to be skeptical about what we approach. The, the, the big-ass skeptics are, to me, the ones who answer most questions like this. No, it doesn't. No, it isn't. <laughs>
3: yeah, just and, naysayers.
1: <coughs> they're the naysayers, and I've yeah. got a good, a good friend of mine. I mentioned him in the book, not by name. I said uh, in my first chapter, Science Almighty is the name of the chapter and uh, um, I mentioned him by saying a good friend of mine is a big-ass skeptic. Uh, I don't think I even used the term big-ass skeptic when I wrote that first book but I I said uh, he is somebody that uh, has supplanted religion and faith with science and skepticism. And if you are going to rely on science and skepticism which are finite facts, we only learn what we can learn as we go, um, then what you are doing is, in essence, if you are denying that anything else can exist, you've really become the surrogate for religion. And uh, when you've got guys like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, noted uh, um, evolutionary biologist out there, and he makes statements like, religion is trash. (laughs) Well, maybe to a certain extent it is, uh, because it's just the workings of faith. But uh, when he says that and then elevates science above religion and above those things, above faith, what are you doing? You're just saying science is more important than religion, and you've just made a new religion. So, and I will tell you this, scientists and academicians are more religious than most Baptists I know.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That is very true. um <coughs> uh, <did you>, uh,
4: <coughs> I really like what you said a minute ago about uh kind of everyone seeing in black and white, or most people kind of see yes. black and white and don't understand about being neutral you know and i'm I'm with you there about looking at everything with uh neutrality at first and kind of following up with questions and uh that's hard for a lot of people to do. I'd say the biggest majority
1: well, I will tell you this i I am probably less um less objective than I might seem. Uh, only because I've grown so weary of the uh, It's got to be just the facts and what science can can validate and verify No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. That's where I become the big-ass skeptic to them No, it doesn't. Yeah. My answer to that uh, We couldn't quantify oxygen 6,000 years ago by, by chemical and uh, elemental uh, units uh, Does that mean it didn't exist and we couldn't breathe it? Uh, no, it just meant, well, then of course the answer to that, well, they defined it by, they knew they could breathe, so they defined it a different way. I said, maybe that's all we're doing, we're defining these things by a different way. It right. doesn't rule out the possibility that, you know, Carl Sagan said, uh, my, his parents instilled in him two wonderful things. Number one, was the, the importance of the scientific method, and number two, to never lose a sense of wonder about what's out there in the universe. And I think that's where you have to be on these things. You have to fall down that middle road where there's not proof for something. Uh, 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 late Richard Feynman, um, astrophysicist that was a contemporary of Oppenheimer and Einstein, he said, he said, if you try to rely on science and think that science has all the answers for the where or who we are, where we came from, where we're going, he says you're going to find yourself very frustrated. Another
3: Hey Scott, you're kind of fading out on us.
1: Uh, you know what that could be the it could be Skype.
3: <laughs> okay yeah, you're good now.
1: okay. so I think that uh, uh, people tend toward faith and mysticism and religion because science doesn't have all the answers. And when science puts itself out there as having all the answers, or we don't have all the answers, but the things that you believe in by faith we cannot ascribe to because we cannot quantify them. Well, they're 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 lopping off an arm, you know, despite their foot.
4: So. Right.
3: Uh, you you had mentioned uh, about the Garden of Eden. I believe that that's yes. something that I uh, that I've run across too, called the serpent seed theory. Yes, and that is about the lineage of. Uh, I'm not quite sure that I really buy all that, but I thought I, it would be interesting to cover that. Uh,
1: I don't that theory. I don't ascribe or subscribe to the serpent seed theory per se by definition. Yeah. Now, I wrote about that to great extent in this next book, which is coming out in February. Yeah, uh, but uh, the serpent seed theory basically says that Satan implanted his seed in Eve. And uh, she bore not only his child, but Adam's child. Now, that much of it, when you look at it again, put yourself inside that mythological box for a second and say, how does this work? I've got a... I I looked at this, and I kind of parsed it down this way. The story of the Garden of Eden, and Eve eating a piece of forbidden fruit, which we always say apple, but the Bible never calls it an apple, A piece of fruit And she gives it to Adam And because of their disobedience Mankind fell This is what we were taught theologically And mankind is in a fallen sinful state Because of an act of disobedience It wasn't the eating of the fruit It was the disobeying of God's mandate Now You start looking at that story And you find, wait a minute There's a whole lot more to this story Than meets the eye And there's a whole lot of encoded message here one of the first clues that I got that there was something different going on here was it has the serpent character. And uh, let me give you a pop quiz: Who were we always taught was the serpent in the garden? Who was that?
3: It was always the we always taught that it was Lucifer, the devil.
1: Right. We're taught Lucifer and the devil. But did right. you know that Lucifer, the devil, Satan never appears anywhere in the passage? And it wasn't for at least another 1,000 to 1,500 years before Lucifer and Satan and the devil were attributed to the serpent in the garden, later. Uh, In the passage, you have the word Nakosh, which is the Hebrew word for brazen serpent or bright shining one. And uh, the interesting thing about Nakosh is it seems to be that the sin that he imparts or that he offers mankind, or that mankind takes up, is an offering of knowledge. Uh, what does he say? Uh, you can eat of that tree. It's the knowledge tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You won't die. You'll be like gods. And so Eve takes the fruit and eats of it. Now, the interesting thing before I go on uh, defining uh, Nakasha's name here, what does it say? Here's one of your first little clues right in the English. It says Eve looks at the fruit and does something before she eats it. Let me ask you something, when you pick up a banana, or an apple, or a mango, or whatever you want to eat, you look at that and you say, hmm, this not only looks mighty tasty, but it looks like it's something that's gonna give me wisdom and knowledge. You know, I don't look at a piece of fruit that way. Yeah, not usually. Um, Especially a piece of fruit I've never eaten before. Um,
3: Energy, maybe.
1: I might go, hey, that banana might take away, uh, if I eat enough of them, might take away that that pain in my thigh. But uh, uh, in the passage in the English, it says, Eve looked upon the fruit and saw that it was not only pleasing to the eye, but that it was something that would make her wise. And that's your first clue, that something more is going on beyond the surface story in the text. Um, she looked at a piece of fruit and saw that it would make her wise. So she eats of the fruit. I believe that the whole passage, the whole interaction between um, Nakosh, the serpent character in the Bible, and Eve was a sexual encounter. Hmm. And it was one of imparting knowledge to humans. And uh, here's why. First of all, redefine the word Nakosh. Nakosh. For the serpent character. That's the name that's present. Nakash, by definition, means trickster, uh, crafty magician, the bringer of knowledge and illumination, the bright shining one. Uh, later in the Old Testament, when uh, the, the children of Israel are out in the wilderness and they're complaining and God sends serpents to bite them all, and they're dying, and so Moses crafts a brazen bronze shining serpent puts it up on a pole and all people have to do is come and look to that serpent and they'll be healed well the the Nikoshte, I think is the way it's pronounced is the the same word used it's a derivation of the of the the, the name Nakosh uh, for the brazen serpent because it was the bright shining serpent raised up on a pole now if Nakosh is the bright shining one the bringer of knowledge go back to something we talked to a little earlier Psalm 82 where God speaks to the Elohim and it says Elohim spoke to the Elohim and he said, you are the Elohim, the bright shining princes of heaven. This bright shining characteristic seems to be something that crosses over with the Elohim. These sons of the Elohim, those of the Elohim, the caste of the Elohim, the pantheon of gods called the Elohim. They're the bright shining ones. In the garden you have Nakosh, the bright shining one who has come down may very well have been Lucifer by name but he doesn't he's not called that in the text sure so contextually he has no name other than Nikosh the bright shining one the bringer of knowledge
3: this is in the original Hebrew
1: this is in the original Hebrew now keep in mind let's throw this little wrench in the gears we don't have any of the original texts anymore Uh, if Moses wrote the book of Genesis which I don't think there's any reason to doubt that he wrote the first five books of the Bible uh, you know, you get your three major faiths in the world, Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam, that all hail to Moses as the great prophet. Um, I think he was an historical character who existed. Uh, but if he wrote the book of Genesis and the following four books, um, he would have written those right around 1400 B.C. in that time period. Uh, because, and that goes back to dating Moses uh, by biblical passages and so on this is actually the topic of the book that John Ward and I are writing on the dating of the exodus and Moses but if you date it, he, he would have been right around 1400s that he wrote the original texts, those original texts don't exist anymore everything was destroyed and burned and you know what happened, they wrote the Septuagint in about the 400s B.C. in Babylon and the Septuagint um uh, Alexandria and the 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 uh, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament as brought down by 72 different theologians in oral tradition and they all sat in separate cells and wrote out the Old Testament and the books of the law and the books of Moses and they compiled the the ones and they all came out with the the same facts and the same so on and Dr. John Warren and I were just discussing this just this morning as a matter of fact and uh, <clears throat> so you've got the Septuagint written from oral tradition. There are no original texts to go by. But uh, Nakosh and this encounter in the garden is all from 70 different oral traditions all combined into one, and this is what they got. And uh, for sake of simplicity. And uh, so what you've got in this story is a character who is one of the Elohim. He is a bright, shining, <coughs> he is Nakosh. And I believe the encounter was sexual It wasn't about eating an apple And it's the things that happen afterward That that qualify this case What happens as soon as Eve eats of the fruit She gives it to Adam Brings Adam into the mix And immediately the Bible says And they realized they were naked And I thought what does naked have to do with Original sin? Why did the realization that I have sinned cause the realization now that I'm naked? And they went and they covered themselves with fig leaves. And uh, um, God comes down looking for them. Where are you? Where are you? And Adam says, I'm hiding. And well, why are you hiding? God says. Adam says, Because we're naked. And God says, Well, who told you you were naked? And Adam starts the whole blame game, as we know. Well, the woman, she gave me this thing. And. The, right. of the serpent, you know, and yeah. so God curses them all in this story. Tell me that doesn't sound like a lot of mythology right there, but this is what we believe Judeo-Christian. And uh, what does he say to them all when he's cursing them? There's two things. He says to the, the serpent, he says, uh, um, he, he utters what is known as far and wide to be the first messianic prophecy. The prophecy of the coming Redeemer, the Messiah, who would someday come to deliver fallen mankind from their sinful state. And uh, this is believed by rabbinic schools as Christian schools like There's no dispute on this. But God says to the serpent, he says, And there will be a day when you will bite his heel, but he will return and crush your head. This was the messianic prophecy of the coming Messiah, the one who would be one of us. And then uh, he then says to all of them, and there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman or of humankind. And what I believe happened in the Garden of Eden, uh, Eve has twin sons. She's impregnated with twin sons. One son is the son of Nakosh, the other is the son of Adam, Cain and Abel and now the bible doesn't call them twins i've i've extrapolated that from other first family mythologies where most of your first families always had a trickster uh revealer bringer of knowledge type of character that came in and um either impregnated the wife of the first couple or the daughter of the first couple and the result was always multiples there were twins or triplets or quadruplets or quintuplets in, in all these ancient stories of all these different first families And I don't think there's any difference with Cain and Abel uh, But Cain is the son of of Nakosh. Abel is the son of Adam But both born by Eve, the mother of all Now what happens is they grow up We don't know how old they were But it says that uh, they disputed over whose uh, offering was the best one for God And Cain in jealousy smites his brother and kills him <clears throat> and God comes to him, puts a mark on him, so no one else would be able to find him. Now, by my reckoning, in the mathematics of Genesis, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> there was, let's see, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, oops, chicken scratched through Abel, that leaves three people. Yeah. Um, who are these other people? Who else That's is around? Yeah. Totally different topic. Now, of course, I right. in our theology it was taught as well, obviously generations had passed and these guys could be 200 years old at this point and uh, Adam and Eve had hundreds of kids or something like that and they all spread out and proliferated and so on. Uh, That's a theory but the Bible doesn't say that. What does it say as a matter of fact after Cain kills Abel it goes back to this very almost sweet kind of somber uh, uh, bittersweet verse where it says when Eve is impregnated again by Adam she says, uh, and they bear a son. She says, I'm going to name him Seth. She says, because God has given me a man-child to replace my lost son, Abel. Um, and it's doesn't say anything about any other sons. Uh, why, would a- why would Seth be the replacement for Abel when she's got a bunch of other kids? Uh, so these are things you can, you know, it's all speculative at this point. Sure. So... What goes on from here in the Old Testament is what I think establishes the serpent seed or a variation of the serpent seed theory. I've already said that I think uh Nakosh fathered Cain. Well, here is something, uh, as the Bible goes out and teaches you all you you get all these chapters of genealogies, all the records of and Adam bore Seth and Seth you know, and so on and down the line and Lamech lay with three women and bore ten sons, and one of his ten sons, the eldest, bore this one, and lay with this woman and bore him. And he begat him and he begat her. And what the Jewish tradition did, or the Hebrew tradition, was to trace patriarchally the firstborn son in the line was what passed the line on to the next. It was also always tracing the firstborn son. Now here's a little interesting bit of information. When they get down to Noah and the Noah and the ark story, right after the whole Nephilim event, they trace Noah back to Adam. But they don't trace him through Cain, the firstborn, which is tradition. They trace him through Seth, the thirdborn. Right. Then you get up to King David. Uh, many thousands, uh, two, two thousand years later, three four thousand years later, I think it is, and you trace David all the way back. They trace his genealogy back to Adam, again through Noah, but not through Cain, the eldest, the firstborn son, but through Seth. Then even in the New Testament, when they try to establish the Messianic uh, uh, blood of, the, of Jesus Christ, they trace his mother, Mary, back to the line of David. Because, oh, by the way, the, the Messianic prophecy changed after the time of David. Now Jesus had to come, or the Messiah had to come from the, from the line of David, the root of Jesse. And uh, so that was added on after the time of David as a requirement to be Messiah. And so they trace him back to David through Mary and all the way back to Adam again through Seth. Why is this the only case where they omit the firstborn son and trace through the thirdborn son? You know why? Because Cain was not of pure human blood. He was not Adam's son. So he could not produce the line of the Messiah. And when you've got through the whole Old Testament this genealogy what were the purpose of the genealogies? The genealogies were to establish that there was a pure human bloodline from which the Messiah would come. It was first prophesied in the Garden of Eden. And when you have this over and over and over and over again, the Old Testament drilling into your head, the Messiah must be one of us one of the human line, one of the pure human race, of the line of this guy, going back to this guy, to this guy, to this guy, to Seth, to Adam, the line of the pure humans, it's obviating the obvious that there was a line that was not of pure human blood, and that was Cain and the Kenites. And this goes into all the the new stuff I started talking about in the new book, how excuse me, Cain and the Kenites, um, after the Exodus, there was the tribe of Dan, that went north, and split off from Israel, and they settled in the region below uh, uh, what was Samaria, the northern re- stretches of northern Israel, up into the what is now Iraq and Iran. Sure. And they intermingled <coughs> with the the Anu, the tribe of Anu. Now this all comes out in one of the the the, the Celtic and something I skipped over is that these flood stories and these accounts of of non-human entities intermingling with humans, all related to old flood stories. Um, there's over 600 of them in ancient cultures, religions, tribal stories. One of them is uh, the story of the Tuatha de Danann, which is a favorite of mine because I come from Welsh, Scottish, Celtic yeah. stock. And uh, that story speaks of, in ancient Ireland, the, the, the Tuatha de Danann, the children of the goddess Danu.
3: Now, were they, they were, giants?
1: They, it says that they were tall... Elegant, with shining skin, they were called the bright, shining kings who descended from heaven amongst the ancient Irish, and interbred with them. Taught them forbidden knowledges of the gods. There were the wars, and they were driven back into what was known as, in Irish mythology, as the hollow hills. And they became known as the elven folk. The, uh, and by the way, the the e l of el, and el shaddai and Elohim, and all comes up again in the name elf or elven and uh um these elven folk <clears throat> are the uh, the equivalent of the the sons of god the bright shining ones the uh, the bright shining ones the elohim the bright shining kings from heaven the tuatha de Danan. now what's interesting is this tribe of dan which i mentioned they intermingled with the tribe of the anu the remnant of the anunnaki and the tuatha de Danu have also been interpreted as the Tuatha de Anu. They are of the tribe of Dan and the Anunnaki combined. And these are the ones that spread throughout Europe and went into the, uh, the Celtic Isles and so on. And uh, so what's very interesting is that uh, the, the Anunnaki, the, uh, their, their descendants or their offspring, the Anu, or the tribes that intermingled with the northern, with the one break-off tribe of Israel. Now, this, of course, none of us were there, but right. is, there are records that indicate some of this, and there's a lot of speculation behind all of it.
3: Now, I have heard some <laughs> of the um, some things about Ireland and and the Celts that they possibly that there's some archaeological finds that the, and some of the linguistics that maybe that does link them back to the Middle East at yes. yes. some distant point in time. Uh, Since we're on the subject of talking about the Anunnaki, um, you do, uh, in the book, take kind of the the, the Sitchinite theory, the task, and the people that believe in Zachariah Sitchin, as kind of like that that's, to them, almost a religion. And and What are your views on the the whole Anunnaki thing?
1: Well, if you look at it historically, mythologically, the Anunnaki were... The gods of the ancient Sumerians, yeah. and this god caste. Think, think, uh, get a picture of the Greek gods in your mind. This is what you've got with the Anunnaki. They were the god caste of the ancient Sumerians, and Elil was the chief god, and and his brother god Enki, also known as Ea in the Akkadian texts, the neighboring Akkadian state. Uh, Enki Ea was one of his brother gods, and there was a point, and I, I actually read this. I, I it was. Fu- uh, funny, I'm, I'm sitting in bed one night reading this uh, new translation, more recent translations of the old cuneiform texts of Mesopotamian uh, Sumerian mythology, and uh, how's that for an exciting read? It's either that or graphic novels. So,
3: um,
1: <laughs> but I'm reading, and my wife is almost asleep, and I go, "Rainy, wake up!" I said, "You got to hear this." And she goes, what, what? I go, i got to read this cuneiform text to you. <laughs> and, she, and so she sits with her head on one elbow. God bless my wife. Uh, she, uh, when she would rather be sleeping or, or playing a video game or watching, you know, teenage pregnancy reality shows. <laughs> oh, wow. Which, which I hate. But uh, uh, she sits in, with rapt attention and going, okay. Read me the cuneiform, <laughs> and uh, and I'm reading this account, and it talks about Elil, the chief god of the Anunnaki. It says, and the and the Anunna met, and and Enki, or I'm sorry, Elil, the chief god, was complaining about all the work they have to do, and he says, basically, he's saying, I know, he says, Enki, he says, I want you to create for us, primeval man, that they may do our work for us, that they may till our lands and our gardens and reap our crops and and uh, uh, mine our resources and dig our trenches and canals for us and so Anki joins with the the sister God and they they make primeval man and uh, the problem here is that as time wears on mankind is complaining about this heavy burden of slavery to the gods and uh, a man named a uh, Hasheras uh, 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 I can't even think of his how to pronounce his name off the top of my head now without looking at it. Um, he cr- gives a prayer of lament to his god Enki, and Enki hears his plight, and Enki comes down and teaches mankind how to rebel against Elil. He gives them the forbidden knowledge of the gods. Now Enki was the patron god of the city Eridu, which sat on the Euphrates, and it it was surrounding it was this beautiful you still can visit it today The the beautiful if you will you think swamp and you think you know vile and smelly and slimy the 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 swamplands the wetlands that surrounded Eridu were known as were known as the serpent's marsh and beneath the serpent's marsh was the great abzu the great underworld sea from which Enki ruled the world and Enki would go out in his boat and and uh, take uh, uh, excursions through the serpent's marsh and he loved it there and it was known as Ea's Den and uh... it was from this place that Ea, uh, or Enki, also known as Ea uh... The her- hence we get Ea's Den uh... this is where he uh... ruled mankind and from where he helped lead a rebellion against Elil the chief god with the humans and for this the humans win their their slavery because they get they gain the forbidden knowledge of the gods and Elil and the rest of the gods condemn Enki Ead and his followers to the subterranean caverns of the earth to dwell forever they're condemned there now <coughs> uh, the, the so the Anuna, the Anunnaki uh, uh, the remnants of which were the Anu um, these were the gods of the ancient Sumerians now do a little history here the mythologies of the Anunnaki were written about 1,500 to 2,000 years prior to the writing of the book of Genesis. Right. And what did Moses do? Moses established Judaism. He created Judaism. Uh, <clears throat> so in his writings, you've got El, the chief god El, which is uh, Elohim, and uh, the Elohim. And uh, El, if you follow the migration of humanity Mankind and the migration of religion From the fertile crescent area Between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers uh, And uh, Eridu And Eazden And you, you bring that all down A couple thousand years later Into the Canaanite region uh, The Canaanites Borrowed the word Elil And used El for their god And the Hebrews picked that up So El is actually from of, of Hebrew Is actually from the Sumerian for uh, Elil. Now do the same thing with Enki. Iyah. Iyah is a name that, in this same migration of thought, ended up down in the Canaanite region, and Iah is this, is the base word for Yahweh, which is the Hebrew for Jehovah. And so you have these two gods in the Hebrew religion, Elil. I'm sorry, Elohim, and Jehovah that are actually based on Sumerian gods. Now, look at the story of the Garden of Eden and compare it to the Anunnaki's creation and enslavement of humanity. When the Anunnaki created primeval man to do our work for us and to till our ground for us and to mine our resources and they're enslaved, go to the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. It says, God created man from the dust of the ground And he placed the man and the woman in the garden to do what? To till the garden and to keep it for him. Right. And to do the work in the garden. But it was paradise, it's been interpreted, as opposed to slavery. Yeah. Now what happens with Enki, Ea, when he comes to uh, Hasheratus and uh, helps them rebel against Alil and the gods by teaching them the forbidden knowledge of the gods from a place called the Serpent's Marsh, the place called Ea's Den, uh, take Ia's den, Ia-den, and you have Eden. And you have the serpent character. Uh, instead of the serpent's marsh, the serpent character, Nakosh, comes and teaches the forbidden knowledge of the gods. And what happens to both of those characters and the different mythologies, they're both condemned for what they've done, for teaching forbidden knowledge. This is one of the comparatives where you start to look at that and you say, Wait a minute, Moses, or as Yule Brenner would say, Moses, 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 (laughs) what were you doing? Were you writing factual stories as related to you by God, or were you religion building and borrowing from other cultures? Not just the Sumerian culture, which he would have been steeped in in his education in the palaces of 18th Dynasty Egypt for his first 40 years, but he was also thoroughly Egyptian. He may have been Hebrew by blood, but he was an Egyptian. There is no doubt about that. When the New Testament talks about Moses by faith identified himself with his people, and by faith he did this and did that, that's a New Testament interpretation of events. Moses wasn't doing anything by faith. Uh, you got to get out of your mind the picture of Charlton Heston down in the mud pits. Uh, in the 1957 movie, The Ten Commandments, you know, down there making mud bricks with his brother Hebrews, that didn't happen.
3: <coughs> which which can I effect. can I say real quick that a lot of uh, of our of our religious things that we that we get in our culture now uh, really is filtered through is really filtered through Hollywood.
1: <laughs> it is, yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, now, as much as I, I love the, the old movie, The Ten Commandments, and yeah. I actually really enjoyed the animated version that uh, 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 DreamWorks came out with, the, the, the Prince of Egypt. It was very cool. Uh, it was a very cool film, well worth watching with your kids, but it really adulterates the, the story. But uh, here's what you've got. The Bible talks about Moses and his entourage saw the Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave and Moses murders him and buries him in the sand and then the next day sees two Hebrews fighting and he goes over and tries to break up the fight did he do this from the mud pit no he was there overseeing things and he went over and he tried to break up this fight And the one Hebrew says what are you gonna kill me like you did the taskmaster yesterday and Moses said surely this thing is known and Pharaoh will have my head for it and so he runs for forty years lives in Midian, Uh, marries the daughter of the pagan high priest of Midian, and uh, becomes a shepherd king. (coughs) The interesting thing with this whole story is if you do the historical research on when Moses would have lived and who he would have interacted with, Moses was actually a rival for the throne of Egypt. And in either Dr. John Ward's or my points of view, he has a different time period, he puts it in, two generations later. Uh, which is only about 80 to 90 years later is when he places Moses in the Exodus. But they're still both royal characters in in all the facts that seem to come up. In my story, and I'll give you the very quick on this, uh, there is a keystone date in the Bible that not only biblical scholars adhere to, but secular scholars only because it is a rock-solid date in history, and that is the establishment or the dedication of the day that the temple was built in Jerusalem by Solomon. Now, they even dispute whether Solomon existed or was a real character, but Temple 1 is, a, is an archaeological fact. They know when it was built, 966 B.C. Now, in the, the Old Testament, in the, in the book of First Kings, chapter 6, verse 1, it says that the, uh, it had been 480 years since the Exodus on the day that Solomon dedicated the Temple, Temple 1, in Jerusalem. So if you do your math, you end up with the Exodus from 966 B.C. tack on 480 years, you end up with 1446 B.C. as the date of the Exodus. Now, according to the Bible, Moses was 80 years old. He had returned to Egypt after being 40 years in the wilderness in Midian. And so he was 80. If you do the math again, you end up with his birth roughly around 1526 B.C. Who were the pharaohs on the throne through his lifetime? In 1526, the pharaoh on the throne was Tutmosis the uh, First. Then there was Tutmosis the Second, II, Tutmosis the Third, and there were a couple of Amenhoteps in the middle of there. And, uh, <laughs> um, and you've got this line of pharaohs that lived during the time of Moses. Now, if Moses was found in the Nile by the daughter of Pharaoh in 1526, well, it said he was about four months old, and his mother could hide him no more. Uh, because of this edict to kill all the Hebrew slaves, according to the biblical account. She puts him in a little basket, floats him down the Nile. His sister Miriam follows to make sure he's not eaten by crocodiles. And he ends up in the in the little uh, uh, pools that enter the palace area. And he's found by none other than what the Bible calls only Pharaoh's daughter. And there's no titles, there's no names to any of these pharaohs or anything in the biblical account. And I think there's a reason for that.
3: Yeah, they just call so, him Pharaoh, yeah.
1: <laughs> they just call him Pharaoh. Well, if this happened in 1526 B.C., the, the, the woman who would have found him was a woman, a young woman, about seven to nine years old, named Hatshepsut. Uh, Hatshepsut was the only daughter to Pharaoh Tutmosis I, who had royal claim. The rest of his kids were all harem wives, and uh, 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 Hatshepsut was the only royal daughter, and she was called by the title of Pharaoh's daughter and uh, she found the, the son. Now what does she do? According to the biblical account, she sends him back to his mother to be weaned and until she is old enough to claim him. And if she's only seven to nine years old, at 12 to 13, she could claim him as her son. So he returns, and a lot of the traditions say Moses came back at age five to seven years old to uh, Pharaoh's daughter. She claims him and she raises him as her own son. Now there's some historical facts here she had was stepmother she she was married to a guy named uh, uh Tutmosis the and he was weak and sickly <clears throat> married to his sister i mean go, go figure is weak and sickly uh if that's what the, the pharaohs <laughs> well, did with their lines yeah they all married
3: their to? sisters yeah
1: yeah and uh, he dies off he has a son Tutmosis the third by a harem wife not by his sister Hatshepsut and he is the royal heir to the throne but she becomes co regent with him, he's too young to rule, and she becomes co regent and she actually takes over in a year or two as the pharaoh of Egypt. She dresses in men's clothing and so on. She has a daughter and she has a man named Senemut, who is the, the uh, tutor to her daughter Nefruri. And there is a lot of speculation that Senemut he was about he was under ten years younger than her and uh, there was some claim that he he even may have been romantically involved with her because of their closeness but he was appointed the royal tutor uh, and don't get out of your mind the picture of a school teacher he was a tutor because of who he was and he taught the royal daughter but he also had over 20 different royal titles bestowed on him by Hatshepsut the final title she bestowed on him Well, well, by the way, he was like chief architect of Egypt. He was the one who designed and built Dier el-Bahre, the the, the big funerary temple of Hatshepsut you can still go visit in the Valley of the Kings today. Uh, Just a glorious architect. He was a vizier. He was all these different things. Then she bestowed on him the title of Mother's Brother. And this was an Egyptian title. And what it meant was, I, your mother, am elevating you to the status of brother so you can also be a brother to the gods with me. So Senmut was more than just a tutor. Uh, I believe Senmut was none other than Moses, because at the time the dating system says Moses would have turned 40 years old and murdered the Egyptian and fled, Senmut disappears off the scene completely. He's never heard of again. Interesting. Uh, she, she dies a few years later. What happens? I believe she was grooming Senmut to be the next pharaoh. As a matter of fact, there's a place, I just read it just this morning, uh, um, a man named Ames, A-A-M-E-S, a a variation of of Tutmosis and those names. Ames was the king of Egypt, it said, but on his tomb is this writing, and they never found his body, by the way, but it says that I was the son, the great woman had I was the tutor to her daughter, and there was nothing she wouldn't give me, and, you know, he was a royal, he was called a king. But there's no record of him ever being king. I think Hepchitzit was raising Moses in rivalry to her stepson, Tutmosis III, who was the rightful heir to the throne by a harem wife, but she hated him because he was from her husband, uh, Tutmosis II, who she hated. And she kept describing his deeds to the deeds of her father on great monuments of Tutmosis I, and kept eradicating the memory of Tutmosis III. Well, what happens? Uh, Senemut leaves the scene. Moses leaves the scene. Hatshepsut dies a couple of years later, and Tutmosis III comes to the throne, and he becomes the most pinnacle golden pharaoh of the of the age. He brings Egypt to its golden pinnacle in 18th Dynasty. What's one of his first official acts? He strikes from every monument, every relief, every statue, every painting, the image of his mother, his stepmother Hatshepsut. Totally eradicates her memory from Egypt. Even on her own funerary temple, you can see her image, the shape of a person there, all artistically chiseled out. And he expresses a great hatred for the lying, deceitful woman and uh, this great hatred I think was fostered by the fact that he was the rightful heir and she was raising her own adopted son to replace him and this is why I think when Moses think about this for a second when Moses murders a guy who is a half step above a slave and he's part of the royal family why is he afraid of Pharaoh's wrath yeah um and I asked John John about this John Ward I said, would, he, would a man in that position, take Moses out of the equation, would a, a man who is in line for the throne, part of the royal household, murder a taskmaster who is a step above a slave, would he be held accountable, would his head be on the block? And said, absolutely not, John told me. He said, uh, that would have been done away with very quickly.
3: Yeah,
1: and, uh, it would have been so a big Moses, deal. And what's the first thing he says at the whole burning bush experience, supposedly 40 years later, an experience with God in the wilderness of burning bush. I can't go back there. Pharaoh is seeking my life. And yeah. so, what does that tell you when you read between the lines? I think there's a whole lot more to the story of Moses than murdering an Egyptian taskmaster.
3: I've often wondered a lot about Moses, and that was one of the most, I mean, though it was kind of a diversion in the book, it was one of the most fascinating parts of it, uh, of just the, uh, because you basically put together. What you said in the book just now, and you know, it was one of the most interesting things because I think there is a lot of link to to Moses and to Egypt, like just okay. such as the Ark of the Covenant kind of being like an Egyptian. Well, uh, there's this some correlation there between something that the, the Egyptians would carry as well.
1: Now, I I don't want to give away some of the stuff in this book. John and I are working on, but sure. he's actually putting forward a theory that has never been put forward before about the Exodus where he places it but he has certain royal officials that match not only Moses but match his brother Aaron that match his sister Miriam Um, and they all have to do with one of the sites that John and I are going to go see in January is out in the Sinai it's about 22 miles east of the Red Sea and it's the the ancient uh, 3000 plus year old ruins of the Temple of Hathor Hathor was the, the the calf god and uh... there are mountains around that uh, one of the mountains is called uh... uh off the top of my head uh... I wanna say something El, El Kaddish or something like that but it, it literally means translated in English the, the mountain of fire and it's right by the temple of Hathor with a plateau on the top and all of this and this is one of the candidates for the Mount Sinai of the Bible and <clears throat> uh... John thinks that this all took place there, the whole golden calf thing hathor the temple there why did they go there and they went right there because the man that is his candidate for aaron was not the blood brother of moses but a royal uh, in, in his, his hypothesis here but he was also the high priest of hathor of the calf um, miriam was a priestess a high priestess in that uh... the woman that he names is miriam and what you've got is this collection of according to john's hypothesis of characters from the royal family that took the people out of out of Egypt and that's the first place that they went was the temple of Hathor and there they make the golden calf and uh, I often wondered no matter which dating system you put this into when you've got Moses coming in all these miraculous deeds the great wondrous acts of the hand of God taking place the ten plagues of Egypt uh, he leads them out And they're at the shore of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is closing down. And then God descends in the form of a cloud and blocks Pharaoh's armies. And Moses stretches his rod over the waters, and and the waters part. And it says there's a wall on one side and a wall on the other. And they pass through on dry ground. And then as Pharaoh's army pursues, God releases his hand, and the waters close in and drown the entire army of Pharaoh. Then in two weeks, they're at Mount Sinai. They, they, they march out to Mount Sinai. Moses comes down with the tablets of the law, and what's happening? The people are worshiping a golden calf. And I often wondered this. If you, how about you guys? Adam, Luke, if you guys were, saw all these miraculous events, would you two weeks later, and you're told, this is Jehovah God, this is the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you go out, and two weeks later, you say, I know. Let's build a golden calf to worship.
3: Uh, There'd be little doubt in my mind that God existed at that point.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Even if it was a a personal experience.
3: I
4: I just think that there's something missing. Where's the linkage with the cow there? I mean, where did it come from?
1: The Temple of Hathor. This, I believe some of these people were... Remember, Moses was pure Egyptian. And I'm starting to believe that the chronology is even off, biblically speaking, that... It may not have been 40 years that he was in the wilderness, uh, but if it was, um, he marries, he's not a Jew. <laughs> Judaism didn't exist yet. He was yeah. a Hebrew by blood alone, but he was thoroughly Egyptian. Right. What does he do? He goes out and he marries the, the daughter of the, the pagan high priest in Midian. And uh, when he comes back to Egypt, he leads them all out. And uh, Moses, is estab- he established, he created Judaism. Uh, for the Hebrew people but what are some of the things that he does here are some clues to Moses and his character um, when they're out wandering in the desert for 40 years it says and Moses pitched his tent outside the camp and God would descend in the form of the cloud on his tent and meet with Moses in his tent and there Moses met with God and talked face to face as a man talks to his friend but then nine verses later in the same chapter, Moses writes, And no man can see God's face and live. So what was Moses saying there? Is that, just a, is that just a oops, you know, contradiction in a matter of a few paragraphs? Or was Moses trying to establish something? This is why in my book on the Nephilim, I, I entitle the chapter on Moses, The Pharaoh God of Israel because I believe what Moses brought to Israel was everything he had learned about being a pharaoh God when he was in Egypt and he was thoroughly Egyptian and what he brought to them when he said that I meet with God face to face but no man can see God's face and live what was he saying I'm more than a man I'm a brother to the God and that was the recorded sin of Moses why he was never after this 40 years allowed to enter into the promised land with the Hebrews was because he kept equating himself with God. And now obviously he didn't write that because he died but yeah. the scribes wrote that. And so what do you find in Moses? You find a guy who wrote a story about himself and what he did to deliver these people. He was a man of great ambition. There was an old uh, story from the the, uh, the mikvah, I believe it was, Jewish traditional writings where it talks about Moses was a great general under the Pharaoh of Egypt. And uh, He subdued a rebellion um, during that first 40 years of his life. He he subdued one rebellion in Nubia, and he killed the king, left the queen alive, and he took the throne of this country and named himself king. He gets a message from Pharaoh that says, "Ah, ah, ah, "No, you don't get your ass back to Egypt because uh, that's my territory. Remember, you're my general." And so Moses abdicates and gives the throne to the the hateful uh, uh, remaining queen. Uh, This is one of the stories of the ambition of Moses. And this is why when it came down to the Hebrews, he knew of the the prophecies and the stories of the deliverer. I think he saw an opportunity to become the leader of a people. And that's part and parcel what led to the eventual exodus. And uh, uh, I think it's a bigger story than we're given in the Bible.
3: Uh, let me ask you, Scotty, in the time that we have, we've only got a few minutes, but uh, the time that you, we have remaining, um, you know, uh, talking about the, the Nephilim, um, how do you feel about people that equate uh, the Nephilim and uh, the the fallen angels uh, yeah. to modern UFO, ufology?
1: Um, I think that that's not a, as far a stretch as we might want to think. If you take the story of the Nephilim, and as I said, there are over 600 different cultures that have flood stories, and part of those flood stories are, are um, the stories of non-human entities that descended to humans and impregnated them and and uh, bequeathed the race that some god or higher power wanted to wipe out. And when you look at that story and you boil off the dross of the Hebrew story and all the other stories, you have the common thread of this: non-human entities interacting with humans, changing the race, and some divine character or superior power wanting to wipe them out and bringing destruction by a great flood. Um, And by the way, that is the story of Noah and the Ark. Um, uh, I gotta gotta throw this in there as answer to this question. Uh, Noah, we, we read that God chose him because he was the only righteous man left in his family. Well, that's what it says in the English. In the Hebrew it says he was the only pure blooded man left who was pure in all his generations back to Adam right. through Seth. That's why he was chosen. So uh, God chose one of the, the, the people that was still of pure human blood. That's why Moses was, t- was chosen. Or Noah, I mean. Well, this, this story, relating it to ancient aliens um, if you will, um, if you look at the stories in the Bible and the stories in these other religious cultures, as religious mythology, religious stories, religious trappings put on actual events, they all say pretty much the same thing. That there was some interruption in the human bloodline uh, by non-human entities. Be they, and what did we end up calling them in religion? God, angels, devils, demons, and everything in between. Maybe those are just the labels we put on the things that we encountered. When it might be something completely different, so um, there is one little fact that I that I put in the book, and and this is this fact. It's a factoid, let's put it that way, and that is the 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 place where the nephilim, or I'm sorry, the sons of God, uh, uh, the the Elohim were said to have descended to the earth. It says in the book of Enoch, one of the uh, while the the Book of Genesis only mentions four verses on these characters, Enoch spreads it into chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. He talks about how the Elohim descended to the slopes of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon stands still today in northern Israel, uh, on the, the the highly disputed uh, uh, strip of land between uh, Syria and Lebanon, uh, the Golan Heights, and. Uh, this sits on the 33rd parallel north of the equator now if you trace the 33rd parallel north of the equator all the way around the globe to the exact opposite spot on the 33rd parallel you end up pretty close to the site of the Roswell crash of 1947 and you have to start asking yourself some questions about this um, why is that parallel there divided by thousands of years um, And all the ancient sites that have all this spiritual and ancient alien connotation to them, all are linked with straight lines and opposite sides of the globe, and a grid starts to to transpire. So you ask yourself, there's a little fact Is it true? Is it an exact match? No, it's damn close, though. And you start looking at some things like that and boiling off all the religion, and you find that there are events that took place according to almost every culture that have common threads and talk about the same thing interruption of the human line. something big happened to the human race thousands of years ago yeah and I agree the Hebrew Bible says it happened this way it's their version of events and and this is where and I don't want to step on anybody's toes but I believe the whole story of the messianic line through the whole testament Forgive me for this, uh, those of you who are uh, Judeo-Christian, but the Messianic line is really the story on which piggybacked the story of, of the foreign race, the, the, the dual bloodline that was introduced into humanity, because it carries the whole story of, a, of an opposite bloodline.
3: Hmm. Well, we're just about out of time, uh, Scotty. Uh, was there anything you wanted to add, Luke, or ask real quick?
4: Uh, yeah, that's, that's good stuff, man. You actually make the Bible really interesting. <laughs> the, oh, this is, okay. the, this uh, is exactly... I, I looked
1: at it this way. To me, the Bible is is the Lord of the Rings on religious crack. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's exactly
4: what my brother was talking about, you know, at the, the church he's been going to. And he's like, man, you know, he he really gets down to business, and he reads between the lines, and he tells you... Uh, all of the avenues of symbolism and whatnot that's going on, and the multiple meanings and levels, and and uh,
3: you know, they're the same way. <laughs> we, well, it's, it's interesting you b- brought up the thirty third degree because we talked about that too with our last guest. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, with uh, yeah, Adam Go Rightly last time.
1: In uh, numerology, it's the it's the number of what? Illumination. Yeah,
3: thirty third okay. degree. What well,
1: the whole thing with? The- with the the, the, the nakash in the garden, illumination, the bright shining, when the bringer of knowledge, the illuminator.
3: Right. Uh, we talked about like how um, uh, Albert Pike, the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, they founded. Yes. He founded it in uh, that in Charleston, which is on the thirty-third degree. Uh, we talked about uh, Dallas, Texas, the, where Kennedy was shot on the thirty-third right. degree. Uh, the uh, first atomic bomb, Trinity, on the 33rd degree. And Disneyland on the 33rd degree.
0: <laughs> well, Disneyland, is
1: beast, Disneyland is the beast, Disneyland is the
3: antithesis. I would agree. <laughs>
0: you
1: know, I, I once was, was applying for a job as a creative director uh, down in uh, uh, Disney World. And uh, um, I got a corporate report uh, that gave me a look over. And as I was looking over this document, Disney owns everything yeah, they do. I mean, they on from the, the the come and go quick gas station markets the chain down to you know all, all these changes disney it, you know I, there were these religious groups that were that were uh, boycotting <coughs> back a while back because oh they allowed gays to, to to be in their corporate headquarters and be on their insurance yeah uh, so let's boycott them because that's the love of jesus you know And uh, so they boycotted Disney. Well, just about anywhere you bought anything, Disney owned it. Yep. So Disney's pretty big.
3: It was going to be hard to do. Mm
2: -hmm. For for the love of God, they even own Star Wars now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my
1: God. They're swallowing it all up. (laughs) uh, You know, Dan Madsen is a good friend of mine. He spoke at our symposium this last October, and he's a guy that's been a friend of mine for 30 years, somebody you ought to talk to. He uh, published... Uh, the 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 Star Trek official fan club newsletter back in the late 70s early 80s and he got the first license from Paramount started uh, producing the uh, Star Trek communicator magazine then he got into Lucasfilms was a friend of George Lucas Spielberg and he got the Indiana Jones magazines and the licensure for all the Star Wars official magazines and uh, uh, he just sold that all off a few years ago but I was just talking to him about Star Wars and he said he thinks it's gonna be phenomenal when I was in my 20s in the 80s i remember hearing an interview with lucas and he said i plan to do nine star Wars movies yeah. he says first three and this was when uh, return of the jedi came out and he says now i want to go back and do prequels and he says then i want to go back when luke han and leia are old and and pick up the series when they're older and now apparently that is some of the talk that's going on right now Yep. Huh. is to now of course carrie fisher is going to have to get into a little better shape
3: yeah, <laughs> well,
1: I hope she's not listening to this someday and will hate me for saying that.
3: She may be. You never know. Well, she's
1: in that slave girl costume right now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: Scotty, we, uh, we want to thank you for coming on, and uh, we're going to close out here, but just but uh, we'll just stay on the line for us. And we'll talk sure. to you a little bit off the air. Oh, uh, before you go, actually, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about the paradigm symposium next yes,
1: year. Yes, uh, paradigm symposium. We started that this last year. We had it in October. We had uh, Eric Von Daniken, author of Chariots of the Gods, uh, Giorgio Suculis, uh, uh Bill Burns, uh, couldn't couldn't make it at the last minute, Philip Coppins, uh, George Norrie, all the guys from uh, uh, Ancient Aliens and Coast to Coast, uh, Ian Punnett, a bunch of authors you'd recognize, uh, all came up at a phenomenal event. So phenomenal that we're doing it again in October of 2013. Uh, it's called PS 2013 or Paradigm Symposium 2013. Just go to ParadigmSymposium.com and you can look it up. And uh, right now, I'll tell you this, uh, we've got some phenomenal guests lined up. We've got three that we haven't confirmed yet, but uh, will be their very big names, and I can't announce them until we have contracts signed and all. But we've got Giorgio Sukalis and Philip Coppens and some of the others coming back from last year. And uh, I'll tell you this, if you buy tickets now between the end of December we're giving $100 off of each of the three packages there as the early bird special. So if you're interested, want to take a look at it, uh, take a peek, and uh, get your tickets.
3: I want to try to think about trying to go. So
1: It's going to be amazing, an amazing, amazing event. So. Right, well,
3: excellent. We're going to close out. Um, we'll be right back uh, with the outro on Conspirator Normal. All right, we're back on Normal. Yeah. Oh man, I'm think I'm exhausted again. <laughs> Dr. Adam Go rightly, and now that I think I'm going to sleep for like three years. <laughs> <laughs> that was something else. Uh, I, I was uh, I was really impressed. Yeah, I yeah, feel like he too. needs
4: another like three hours to start to even yeah. cover yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah,
3: and the and the, the book is kind of like that. He goes into a lot of detail, a lot of just it's it's a lot of theology and a lot of detail, but yeah. in the end it. It, it all makes it it makes sense uh the Moses stuff uh that makes sense to me yeah I don't yeah. see why that that's, that wouldn't be something that that's uh, that makes more sense
2: that makes more sense to me than the actual like stories that were told about Moses and everything um I really enjoyed the fact that it wasn't just like you know what he thought he backed it up with you know facts and research right. done and stuff
4: yeah that's what mm-hmm. I was gonna say is it's it's really great how he could uh put in text and writings from other yeah. surrounding cultures and stuff in the area because he's just read all of that and he could put it together. And
3: well, one of the things in historical studies is, is that you realize that in the ancient world, you know, these, even though you had cultures that related to each other, they didn't just sit down and write a history. So the Egyptian history would be from their point of view and they would maybe have a different name for somebody right, yeah, while yeah. say, you know, that's the Babylonian really, that's really history apparent, yeah. would be completely different.
4: Same right. story, it's just different characters.
3: Well, one of the things I was thinking about throughout that was remember, like, uh, the thing that we saw on uh, Wikipedia that uh, had the uh, Sumerian king list yeah. with the, all the guys reigning like, for 36,000 years. Over, years. It, just, it gets crazy less less. stuff.
4: The, fur, the further advances in time, the uh, shorter the the reign time on the throne.
3: Right. <laughs> yeah, the, and it's similar to what's in the Bible with like yeah. the 900 something years. Of, right. People's first live, and then all of a sudden, everybody's living. You know, like well, Moses lived to like 120, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'd be lucky to do that.
2: I, I don't know. To me, to me, that seems almost a little far fetched because uh, unless they had some crazy good medis-
4: medicine. Well, what? Um, it, one thing that I wanted to ask him about, and we didn't have time, is what he thought that the secret, secrets of the gods were. Yeah. And that has to do with uh, you know, Philosopher's stone. and uh, alchemy and, and, uh, putting, extending your life, extending your lifetime.
3: You talking about the manna stuff?
4: Yeah. Mana. And, and, uh, I, I believe that Jesus came to teach alchemy to the people because well, that's I, an I entirely think,
3: different discussion. Yeah. My friend. I know.
4: I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> right. Anything, right. Yeah. I think the ultimate goal of alchemy is to, is to extend people's life and basically have the powers of the gods. So,
2: um, I, I also kind of want to go off in a little different direction here and say that, uh, when he was talking about like the big ass skeptics and the small ass skeptics, mm-hmm. uh, I like the scientific community. You know, I follow a lot of it, and I would I want I, I kind of want to read something from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Twitter because I kind of equate him to the scientific Jesus because <laughs> you know people take what he said and they're like, well, yeah, it must be you true. You and a
3: certain other person, we know.
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, he uh he came out on Twitter and he said, "Into uh, the world prophecies for 2012." Our hoaxes is perpetuated by the scientifically illiterate, on the sci- uh, or on the scientifically uninformed. You all should know uh, by now that if the world were going to end for any cosmic reason, I would tell you how and I would tell you when.
3: Yeah, that's true.
2: That's that that that's crazy
3: to me. That's yeah. We're we're yeah. we're coming up on that pretty quickly. Uh, I, and, I, think I think it's just gets get rewarded
4: stuff. for just being literal. Like, yeah. I
2: don't, you know. But at the same time, you know, uh, Scotty did bring up a good point. Uh, we didn't. We've made so many uh, scientific advances just in the past uh, century, especially um, things that we thought were absolutely crazy 50 years ago. Here we are now, right. you know, and they're fact. They're truth. Yeah, that's I'm holding
3: thing. one in my hand right now. This right. Is yeah. My phone. Yeah. Look at, phone. look at your smartphone. Yeah. You
2: know, but that's one of the things about science is just because uh, you, it doesn't. You can't. Quantify it today doesn't mean that tomorrow
4: yeah. we will not make because two months later now. a new a new method comes out and it just uh, so oh, the, the old method was wrong and now this one's more precise right you know so right
3: that's true well guys I think I'm ready to call it word um, be longer show than usual next week I have coming on a gentleman named Robert Hyde he's a good friend of mine and Doctor Futures uh, he will also be pretty interesting. Uh, he has some he also has some pretty interesting views about uh, uh, Christianity and uh, life in America today and about it about our place in it so uh, and that will be our last show of 2012 unless I happen to do another one with another guest kind of negotiating with but that may or may not happen. Maybe, so. the last
2: show, maybe the last show ever, given whether or not we Oh, yeah, out. that's true. <laughs> uh, I was
3: kind of wanting to do a year in review, too, if, if we have time. So uh, I think let's call it tonight, guys. It. Uh, Luke. Okay. Don't <laughs> drink and drive.
4: It's a lot of fun, man. I'll give you that. No man. But yeah, uh, it's, not, it's not a, really worth the, the cost. It's a rush. Not really worth the cost, though.
3: All right. Well, go get some beer after. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see y'all next time uh, next week on Conspiracy Normal. Yeah.